Well, it's Good Friday, the day that we pause to reflect on the cross of Jesus. And so I have a question just to open up our time together. It's only right in a setting like this to ask it of ourselves. What is your life centered on? What is the thing of immediate importance? The first thing, the central reality, the controlling center of your life, maybe the deciding factor behind the things that you live for. I think about myself as a young person, sports was very much the answer for me. I played basketball, baseball, football. That was what consumed my thoughts in the morning. I probably dreamed about it, hitting home runs, scoring touchdowns, whatnot. It filled my mind related to the decisions that I make, the foods that I ate, and how I spent my time in general. As a young person, sports was very central to my life, okay? It's probably not most of us in this room today. Um, As a washed-up athlete, I hope that's not mine either. But for you, maybe it's something else. There's other things that can be central to our life. I just got a text from a friend this morning I was directly related to a political issue. So are politics central in your life? If politics are central, then they become what's immediately important. So when national tragedies occur, does your mind immediately jump to political solutions? Our jobs can be central. If our job is central, it's the central controlling reality of our lives. So you could ask yourself, does your job take priority in your decision-making over other good things, such as your family, or over your spouse, or over someone that you know who's in need? That's an indication that your job is becoming more central to your heart. Now, we're a church with many families who love our kids, but sometimes our kids can become central, most pressing in on us. And if our kids are central, they become our controlling center, the deciding factor of our lives. So do your kids control your heart? Are kids' activities the deciding factor for your family's priorities? All of these things and many others are actually really good things. Our sports, politics, jobs, kids are all very great things. Certainly being properly involved in politics is good. Our, our jobs are certainly a stewardship that we have from God. Our kids are a blessing. However, if they become of utmost importance, if they're central, if they're the first thing, the controlling center of our lives, the deciding factor, then we are the ones who have become disoriented. So for the Christian, what should be at the center is what we reflect on today. It's the cross of Jesus. The cross for the Christian is the first thing, the central reality, the controlling center, the deciding factor. Christians, when we're oriented rightly, live a cross-centered life. This evening, we're going to consider this cross-evening life. We're going to learn about the cross-centered life from someone who would have known it very deeply, that would have been deeply acquainted with it, uh, the Apostle Peter. He had a firsthand account of all the events that transpired, that the days of the cross, he himself knew about what the events unfolded were. He was one who rejected the one who was crucified. 
he himself would live a life of suffering, bearing his own cross. Jesus, near the end of his life, would tell Peter about what his ending would look like. So the end of Peter's life would look a lot like his Savior's, stretched out, bound, and carried where he did not want to go. So if we want to learn about what the cross-centered life looks like, we can learn from Peter. So I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we'll be. If you, can, if you have one of the hardback black Bibles around you, you can find this on page 1015. Um, if you're a visitor here with us and you do not have a Bible, we are more than happy to give you one. So just as you leave today, you might have noticed some bookshelves in the lobby area. Uh, feel free to take one of those or friends, if you're uh, frequent here, feel free to take one of those, give to a friend during the season of time. Uh, perhaps somebody would be open to reading the Bible for the first time uh, over Easter weekend. So we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll read verse 24, and this will orient our time together tonight. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So I think this verse helps us to answer two questions, two questions that we can answer during our time together. There's two questions. The first is, what did Jesus' death do for us? What did Jesus' death do for us? And the second question is, what does Jesus' death do in us? What does Jesus' death do in us? So what did Jesus' death do for us? And then what does Jesus' death do in us? Two questions that this simple verse answers for us. So the cross-centered life has this at its center, at its controlling reality. This will be my answer to both of those questions and will orient us. The main idea, if you get nothing else, this is what I hope you get. Jesus bore our sins that we might die, live, and be healed. Jesus bore our sins that we might die, live, and be healed. So first, the first question that's answered for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 is, what did Jesus' death do for us? As we look down there at the verse, it seems very clear what Jesus' death did for us. Jesus bore our sins. Plain and clear there in the, in the passage, Jesus bore our sins. So the cross-centered life as Christians, with the cross as central for us, we remember what happened at the cross. If we want to live a life that is centered on the cross, we must center our minds on the cross. And so this is something that we reflect on, particularly on a day like today. On Good Friday, we reflect on what happened at the cross. And I want to take us through three dimensions of what happened at the cross. We certainly see it there. He bore our sins. But there's three dimensions I want to take us through just related to what happened at the cross. The first is the earthly dimension. So we see this in the phrase, in his body. Jesus' death was a death in the body. So on Good Friday, Jesus bore our sins, and he did so by crucifixion. And when we talk about the cross, we're talking about a place 
of torture, of brutal beating, of death. Jesus would die on the cross in his body. The cross is more fitting to have a black shroud around it than a white one on a day like today. As we read the gospel accounts, it's actually quite interesting and maybe even shocking to you. You might have noticed this. If you read the gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it doesn't really give us many details about this earthly dimension, about what actually happened there at the cross. It just simply says that he was crucified. So as you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you might read all these details surrounding it. You might read about the mocking that Jesus received or the title that was above him labeled on the cross, but we don't really read many other details. The physical details about what happened are quite sparse. And I think part of that's intentional because the little that is said speaks louder than words. The Romans and the Jews and the early Christians would have known what the cross entailed when it said crucified. The word was almost unspeakable. It was taboo. It was not spoken of because of the horror surrounding it. It's, it's as if they were saying all of the things that happened on the cross, you wouldn't want to know what happened there. Greg Gilbert, in his little book about Jesus, tells about how Jesus died. And I'll read this extended quote. Just reflect on what happened on that day to our Savior. Shredded flesh against unforgiving wood. Iron stakes pounded through bone and racked nerves. Joints wrenched out of socket by the sheer dead weight of the body. Public humiliation before the eyes of family and friends and the world. This is what death on a cross was. It was the infamous stake as the Romans called it, the barren wood, the maxima mala crux, or as the Greeks spatted out, the stauros. The stauros is what they called it. Really, it's no wonder no one talked about it. It's no wonder parents hid their children's eyes from it. The stauros was a loathsome thing. The one who died on it was loathsome too. A vile criminal whose only use was to hang there as a putrid, decaying warning to anyone who might follow his example. See, Jesus wasn't the only one that was crucified. Many others were too. Criminals. But this is exactly how Jesus died. And this quote that Greg Gilbert just said, it says nothing about flogging. About the whips that were laced with pieces of bone that would rip flesh off of a body the scourging that happened, or perhaps the carrying of the crossbeam that we read about in the gospel accounts. Other early Roman philosophers spoke about the cross. Listen to what Seneca said. He said, can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, letting out his life drop by drop, rather than expiring once and for all? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, Long, sickly, and already deformed, swelling with ugly tumors on chest and shoulders. And they're seeking to draw the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony. Cicero described this crucifixion as the cruelest and most terrible punishment. Josephus called it the most pitiable of, death, of deaths. And Jesus went through all of that. 
This is the physical dimension, the earthly dimension, the bodily dimension. That's only the earthly and the bodily dimension. There was also another dimension, the Godward dimension. We see this in the phrase in the verse, verse 24, on the tree. Jesus' death was in the body, but it also had a spiritual aspect as well. Jesus' death had a Godward dimension. His death was not just brutal, but it was curse-annulling. It was divine retribution taking. What Jesus did was to take on himself the curse that humanity was owed. See, the tree here used by Peter in just this, this verse was just another term that he would use for the cross. And it's very likely that this use of the term for tree or a cross came from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, which talks about the curse and anyone who, ha- who hung on that, cur- on that tree. So anyone who hung on the tree was cursed in a unique, particular kind of way. So the early Christians picked up this tree terminology to talk about the cross. We see that in Paul as well. Galatians 3, chapter 13, he says about Jesus and what he did on the cross. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Thus it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So brothers and sisters, often when we think about the cross, I think in our context, we typically think about the earthly dimension. But as Christians, we must remember this aspect of the cross and not neglect it. So Jesus died brutally in the body, but most significantly, Jesus died to take on himself the curse of sin. He died to take on himself the wrath of God. He died to take the punishment owed to God by guilty sinners such as you and me. Jesus was the one who suffered all of this, but yet he was the innocent one. And yet he would take the full weight of the curse, the full extent of the punishment, the full wrath of justice that sinners deserved. This is the Godward dimension. It's almost hard to even say these words, if I'm honest with you. Just thinking about what happened there, the cross is probably hard to hear. And so it's only right for us to ask the question, why? Why would Jesus do something like that? That brutal, that ugly, that horrible. And the only reasonable thing to ask is why? Why would he do this? And I think the short answer is this. It was love. Jesus did this in love. He was moved by a love to do everything necessary. Everything that was absolutely necessary to save sinners from the punishment that they were owed. Jesus was willing to do everything necessary He himself was willing to go to the cross in control the whole time. But he was willing to take the divine punishment and to satisfy the justice of God that other people deserved. It was the love of God. I read this quote as I was preparing that speaks about this wonderfully. It says, it was the love of God that made the provision in the Son of God for the justice of God to be satisfied. It was the love of God that made the provision in the Son of God for the justice of God to be satisfied. Jesus was driven by love. And it was this Godward dimension that leads us to this last dimension. The last dimension is a personal one. We see this in the phrase in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says, he himself bore 
our sins. He bore our sins. This is a personal dimension. Jesus died to save sinners, and he died to effectively apply his blood to those who were guilty so that they might be set free from their punishment. And the word for this is substitution. Jesus' death was substitutionary. The substitution was personal because Jesus puts himself in the place of everyone who would believe on him by faith. So instead of the believer receiving the due reward of their guilt, Jesus himself receives it. So the innocent is punished and the guilty is set free. Jesus is a substitute. Jesus is a substitute for death for all who would believe on him. And dear friends, all of what I have been describing is the heart of the gospel. The gospel message All of what I've been talking about, Jesus taking on himself the brutal earthly dimension on the cross, the brutal Godward dimension of taking a curse, the brutal personal dimension, taking your sin, taking my sin. All of these things are the heart of the gospel. Because you know why? I don't know all of you here in this room, but I can just imagine some of you in here feeling a weight of some kind of guilt that you've not lived up to how you ought to be living? Do you feel the weight of guilt in your life? Or perhaps, as I mentioned earlier, the different areas that might become central in our lives. So our kids, our jobs, other good things, maybe you recognize other areas of your life that have become more central than the cross. Well, on Good Friday, what you need to hear is that Jesus' love shouts to you from the cross. Jesus' love shouts because we see that Jesus was willing to die in the body, to take the full weight of divine justice, to personally substitute himself for you. He was personally willing to take your sin, to take your guilt, to take your punishment away from you and onto himself. And he would say, for all who would believe in me, you can be freed forever from the guilt that you feel from all the ways that you've fallen short, for all the ways that you haven't kept him central in your life, you can be forgiven of those things finally and fully if you would but put your faith in him. That's the hope that we have on Good Friday. That's the heart of the gospel. So if you're here today and you're a visitor, perhaps you don't know where you are with Jesus. The hope that we have as Christians is that if you will consciously trust in this Jesus, that he will willingly and finally and fully forgive you of every last sin that you feel guilty for. Jesus is ready and willing to forgive your sins. But there's a lot of Christians in this room. Look around, I see a lot of members of Beacon here, maybe some family members who've joined. For you, these truths are something that should seep deeply into our hearts, seep deeply into our souls, seep deeply into the center of our heart. As we think about the death of Jesus and all the things that I just mentioned, that's what Jesus did for you. Let that seep into your heart. So we've reflected on the cross. What did Jesus do for us? That's like a past dimension. What did Jesus do in the past? Now we can consider if we are to have cross-centered lives, what does this look like? What are our lives supposed to look like? If Jesus did that, what does that mean for now? So our second question is this. What does Jesus' death do in us? Perhaps this is most pressing to a bunch of us. What does Jesus' death matter now? It happened then, but what does it matter for you today? 
Or we could ask this, what does Jesus' death do in our lives? See, Jesus died to do something. Jesus died to do something in you. Jesus' death was meant to make a tangible difference in the lives of those he saves. So look back down at that verse. Right in the middle of verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus died to do something. You see that? The first thing it says, the first thing that Jesus' death does in us is it enables us to die. Jesus' death enables us to die. You see it there? That we might die to sin. So the Christian life, the cross-centered life, follows the pattern of Jesus' own life. So we experience our own kind of death every time we put sin to death in our lives. Now, as I was thinking about this, and just the reality, just think about the, what I just mentioned about the cross, its gruesomeness, the ugly brutality, the public humiliation that was there, the bloodiness, the darkness, everything that's surrounding that. And to think that this is what Jesus went through for us. His flesh pulled apart. This gives us an entirely different perspective than what's natural to us. See, we might naturally think that we do the things that give us the most satisfaction, but if the things that give us the most satisfaction did that to Jesus, that flips our minds around a little bit, doesn't it? First Peter gives us a more definition about what sin is. So we might be prone to think that sin is just primarily just those external things, things that happen outside of us, the things that are visible to our eyes. But Peter says sin is actually something quite different. It's not just those external things. It's, in fact, in the passions, in the inner person of the heart. See, sin isn't just our actions. It's in our passions. You can flip over and look in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Look at what he says there. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This is talking about an inward reality, sin happening in here. Or look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Passions that are inside of you. James said something very similar in James chapter 4, verse 1. He said, What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So sin isn't merely things that are outside of us, it's things that are inside of us. So as you consider sin and what Jesus' death has been designed to do to cause you to die, what passions in you are very slow in dying? What passions just don't want to die? Which ones are the most difficult to kill? You know, I can imagine there's many in this room grieving the loss of a loved one that's deep in your heart. So you hold on to that grief for so long, you don't know how to let go. How can the death of Jesus help you to grapple with death in your own life? As you look to him, can, can this verse, when Jesus says that he can break the bonds of death in your own life, in your own heart, he can break the bonds of these sinful passions in your heart. Do, do you believe that's true? He can break that. This consistent grieving, or perhaps 
harboring bitterness or angry, harboring bitterness or anger towards a family member or a loved one. Those are hard to get rid of. But Jesus died specifically so that those bonds can be broken. Or perhaps someone is dealing with sexual temptation that you just can't get over. These are bonds that are hard to get rid of. But Jesus died so that they could be broken. Or do you covet something in this life that you do not have? Some kind of material possession? You see other people that seem like they're living comfortably in this life. And it's so easy to compare yourself. To become jealous of other people. What they have. Material possessions. A position and a job. Whatever it is. Those are gripping in our heart. But yet Jesus died so that we might die to those very thoughts. See, when Jesus died, he certainly broke sin's power. And so we have the power to get rid of those things. Jesus has not yet fully broken sin's hold on us, but he has truly broken it. He's truly broken its power. And he enables us to die in these areas. Allow Jesus to allow those parts of your heart to loosen up, to break. So Jesus enables us to die. He also empowers us to live. You see that there, to live to righteousness. He empowers us, he enables us to die, he empowers us to live. You see that, live to righteousness. There's a peculiar way that he does so. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he gives us many examples of how Jesus enables us to live. So we can live our life. Um, you can look down, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. He gives us a list of these. Uh, he empowers us to live. We can have a unity of mind, sympathy, uh, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. So when Jesus died, he enables us to live. He unifies churches. He allows us to have similar mind, to have sympathy for one another, to have love for one another. He goes on to say, he enables us to not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, we can bless and as you are called, you may also obtain a blessing. So God allows you to live openly in this way. His death allows you to do that. But he takes it a further way, a further step. Look down in verse 14. And this is really the context of uh, verse 24 as well. But look at chapter 3, verse 14. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Skip down to verse 17. He said, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. So Jesus is, or Peter's taking us into an area that's pretty uncomfortable. Suffering unjustly. So if we go back to our verse here, verse 24, it's interesting to see where this brief mention of the cross is placed. See, it's placed among other ethical commands that teach us how to live, among other practical instructions. So you can look around that verse and just see where Christians are, are instructed to relate to emperors, to relate to one another, to relate Christian wives to their husbands and husbands to their wives. And we see particularly in this section between verses 18 and 25, we're in a section related to how servants are relate to their masters. Now you might think, that Jesus empowers us simply to just to do the churchy things, to pray, to sing praises, perhaps to share the gospel with others. But here, Jesus is empowering us to live in the absolutely hardest situations. You see, Jesus is empowering us to live and do good even in the midst of unjust treatment. 
Jesus is able to do that because he himself walked through unjust treatment himself. Listen to these examples from the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to read these and just reflect. How might Jesus have felt as he walked through these unjust treatments? Mark 14, 65. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Mark 15, verse 17. It says, And they clothed him with a purple cloak. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put, and put his clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Or Mark 15, verse 29 and following. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. These are all verbatim quotes from the Gospel of Mark. This is how Jesus was treated unjustly. Unjustly treated. Did, did nothing to deserve such treatment. And yet, what did he say? What did he say about these people that treated him unjustly? Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Jesus showed us the model of what it looks like to be treated unjustly. He suffered unjustly and yet showed exemplary character as he did so. And this is certainly worth minding the depths of. How could someone even act such a way? But here's a brief lesson that we can learn just for today. If Jesus can empower us to live through something like that, that he can certainly empower you to live through whatever you're going through. He can empower you to live through all of your sufferings, all of your pains, all of your anguish. Jesus empowers us to live. Finally, he heals us. So Jesus enables us to die. He enables us, he empowers us to live. And finally, he heals us. This is how the verse ends. By his wounds, you have been healed. Sam Storms looks on this verse, verse 25. He said, here the apostle portrays us in our sin as if we were a wounded body in need of physical healing. And by his atoning death, the great physician has truly healed our hearts. Think of yourself. Your spiritual condition is as a wounded body, one that has been beaten and bruised. And yet the great physician in Jesus comes to you and gives you the healing that you so desperately need. So Peter is quoting the servant psalm of Isaiah 53. And this servant has come to bring healing. The bruises of Jesus brings healing to transgressors, to sinners, to rebels. If you've noticed, there's this pattern that's going on, right? Good Friday, we see a death. Sunday, we see a resurrection. We've seen this very same pattern. We've seen a death and a rising. Jesus enabling us to die to our sin, enabling us to live to righteousness. He does all of this because he has healed us by forgiving us of our spiritual condition.
So his death and his undoing make possible our life and restoration. It's what Jesus has done for us. So in this life, we experience somewhat of a foretaste of death and resurrection ourselves. We experience some kind of death when we put to death our painful dying to sin. And we experience some kind of resurrection or powerful deliverance from it. So on this Good Friday, as we reflect on the work of Jesus on the cross, may we reflect on this deeply in our hearts. And may we apply his work that we may die to sin, live to righteousness, and we might seep deeply into the healing of our souls. Jesus bore our sins that we may die, live, and be healed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you bore our sins in your body on the cross. You took yourself, you took on yourself the due punishment for our sin that we deserved so that we could be set free and forgiven. What a gift of undeserved grace is that. So Lord, we thank you that you have shown us such a love. Help us, Lord, to die to our sin, to live to righteousness, and to rest in your healing. In Jesus' name, amen.